Adversaries are relentless, and they're only getting smarter, faster, and more sophisticated. Knowing their game is the only way to beat them. That's why we're here. Learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. Mr. Adam Myers. Mr. Christian Rodriguez. How's your summer? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's, yeah. uh, it's hot in the D.C. area, so uh, just enjoying that steamy 100% humidity and 90-degree days. But yeah, no, it's good. How's yours? You know, not bad. I love hanging with my kids. I'm not going to lie. But there's a certain point where the demands become overbearing, and I just can't wait for them to go back to school. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. Yeah. It is back Can't to wait. school season for sure. It is. It is sure is. And it that sure means is. that there's uh, increased risk for the school districts and academia in general. Yeah, agreed. I think the adversaries that we've been tracking over the past several years that have historically targeted academics and K-12 specifically, they know what they're doing and they know that the timing of their attacks have some major impacts. I remember tracking a few campaigns and, and speaking to several school districts across the East Coast of, around the impact of these attacks when it came to access to systems. I think there was a, an attack roughly about a year ago that impacted a school district's door system. So they couldn't even like lock or unlock doors based upon a really high-end system that was all tied to the same network. There were several school districts that ultimately had to send all of their students home and the superintendents sent out correspondence to parents saying, hey, we're going to go back to the, I'm using air quotes, old school way of learning, right? Pen and pad. And we're going to try to figure this out as we get our systems back online. But the threat is real. And, and as much as I'm sure my kids would love a couple more days off with respect to school systems being offline, I know that there's a very big increase in attacks that are targeting the academic space because of a few things like limited resources and the expertise that could ultimately help defend against these types of attacks. So I wanted to ask you to maybe spend a little time walking through why the adversaries like Vice Spider, for example, have had such a big interest in targeting these school districts and these K-12s that seem to be quasi helpless when it comes to defending themselves against these types of campaigns. Well, I, I think these two things are linked, right? I mean, let's start with the fact that we call them bad guys for a reason. Mm -hmm. They don't have love in their heart necessarily. And they're so heartless. They, yes. they look for <laughs> situations that they could take advantage of. It's good timing for us to have this conversation because we noticed in the last couple of years that there has been a bit of an uptick, typically in the mid to late summer of actors engaged in ransomware targeting school districts. In fact, I remember that there was a school district that right when they were trying to go to remote learning during the pandemic, they got hit by ransomware and had to delay opening. I remember that somebody was impacted by that and told me that they were beyond furious that like, <laughs> how is it that remote learning could be delayed yeah. by a cyber incident. And so these threat actors, they want to maximize impact and they want to put pressure on the victim to pay. They want to compel mm -hmm. them. They don't care who they are. They don't care that they're educating the youth or any of the altruistic things you would associate with academia. They just want to get paid. And they know that if they can hit a school district that is preparing to open and they knock off the voice over IP PBX, or they knock over the building entry system, as you mentioned, or even just the enrollment system, 
mm, that yeah. you're going to have a bunch of parents that are like, get these kids out of the house. Yeah. <laughs> get them away from me. And yeah. they capitalize on that. So they go after those organizations. They knock them offline. Oftentimes in manufacturing, for example, we've talked about the calculus of ransomware and it's all predicated on downtime maximizing impact. And when you think about a manufacturing organization, that impact is going to be you can't produce widgets or whatever. And so then they're looking at, okay, we're losing X amount of dollars per hour, per minute, whatever it is, that we're not up on online. And at yep. some point, that's going to cross over the amount of ransom demand. So now it's cheaper to pay the ransom than it is to keep trying to fight through it. That's an internal pressure, right? The bottom line is being impacted. When the school district is fielding angry parents and phone calls and emails, if their email system is even up and running, they're getting all this pressure from throngs of parents that just want to get the kids back in school. They feel that pressure externally and they're making that calculus of do we pay and just get back up and running and get the kids back in school or do we have to like figure out some alternative? That's really the impetus to target those school districts is they can count on the parents and the constituents and the users, if you will, as a force multiplier to put the pressure on the administration to get back up and running by any means necessary, even if that means paying a ransomware actor. They don't care. They don't care. Yeah. The threat actors also know that school districts don't necessarily have the access or the resources to employ top cyber talent. Yep. And so oftentimes they will be able to go after a school district and it tends to be easier targeting for them so they know they can get in easily. Their shields aren't as up as they should be. And that once they do it, particularly in August, September timeframe, they're going to get that force multiplier of the parents putting pressure on a school district and compel them to open. Now, in academia, if you take this up, the academic world is more than just school districts. It is yep. colleges and universities and research institutes and things of that nature, which also get targeted by these criminal actors. They also get targeted by nation states. We see North yeah. Korea, China, yeah. Iran, others constantly targeting universities because that's where a lot of cutting edge research happens. That's where people that are perhaps involved in the administration or in various government agencies also have accounts because they're also part of the academic community. You might be a ambassador by day, but also a adjunct professor by night or something like that. Or you were an ambassador and now you're working at a university, but you also advise the administration on various geopolitical topics. And if it's hard to get into a government agency like the State Department, it's easier to get into academia to get insight into what they're telling the politicians or the administration. So sure. it's a very wide set of targeting inside of the academic sector. In fact, every year we put out a vertical report on academia in the August timeframe for our customers so that they get that visibility into what's happened over the last year in that world. And it seems that out of the majority of, of the adversaries we're tracking, Vice Spider, just within the past six months alone, has been probably one of the noisiest when it comes to targeting academics, which is really interesting, actually, if you think about the way that we publish this in our global threat report, where we, we're still seeing ransomware attacks naturally, but we're also seeing a lot of data extortion campaigns. So kind of a migration away from the heavy use of ransomware. But when it comes to academia, 
ransomware just seems to be the thing they use nine out of 10 times. For now, I think data extortion could very well become a problem in academia as well. And I think let's break this into two parts here. The first Mm -hmm. being that student data is something that could be very sensitive, Mm -hmm. particularly when it's dealing with personal information about those students. And the calculus behind data extortion is very different in that they're able to say, okay, we have all these sensitive records. And if you look at state by state across the United States, or if you look across Europe or Australia, there's all of these privacy laws going into effect or have been in effect. And so organizations that lose sensitive data are going to be held accountable for that. And if you don't have adequate cyber protection, you don't have the right defensive posture and somebody comes in and steals tens of thousands of student records and leaks it on the internet, one, you've really impacted these students for life. Their sensitive information could be out there, and that's a huge challenge, as we all know. There could be HIPAA violations there that comes with a fixed cost associated with it. Other types of legal or policy issues, but when that information gets leaked in an unapproved manner, those organizations are going to be held accountable. And so the calculus of ransomware, which I've talked about before, being that you want to maximize the impact, it's a matter of what are the legal and regulatory costs going to be, right? If every student in a school district, let's say, jumps on a class action suit because the school district didn't have adequate defenses in place and lost all their sensitive information, including medical information, that's going to be a big problem for the school district and it's going to be expensive. And so if they look at that and they think, okay, this isn't good, but if we pay and we figure out some way to leverage our cyber insurance or something to, to pay this ransom or extortion demand, then it will be cheaper for the district in the long run. There is, I think, and we're seeing this trend across every vertical where ransomware threat actors are increasingly moving into data extortion. Yeah, um, We've recently seen an increase in targeting of managed file transfer services. So I think yeah. of the, mo- the recent Move It stuff that, that happened back in, in late June, that all ties back to these threat actors going after the sensitive information and trying to get it so that they can leak it. And then it removes the complexity of ransomware yeah. because the thing about those school districts that might not have the, the top tier cyber capabilities at their at disposal, to defend right? themselves. Yeah. 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 When they don't have that available to them, then how quickly can they figure out how to decrypt things, right? Ransomware is not the easiest thing to run a decryptor, right? And so now they're still challenged with trying to decrypt all the files. And the ransomware actor, if they want to maintain credibility in the market, they probably have to help them. Otherwise, they're going to get a bad, as crazy as sounds, a a bad media cycle for a ransomware actor. (laughs) Not only did they take the money, they didn't help them unpack their files. Yeah, that's a bad Yelp review. That's a one-star. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) one-star review. I, I think it takes a lot of the complexity off the table for the threat actor. And then some of these groups are using ransomware as a service. And when you're using ransomware as a service, you're paying 20%, 30% of the final ransom to the service, the platform. And yeah. if you're just doing data extortion, you don't have to do that, right? You could just stand up at a dark web, at what we call a dedicated leak site, and you're off and running. You don't need to pay somebody 30% off the top. Yeah, interesting. I know for Vice Spider specifically, they were leveraging Bitwise Spider's LockBit, Raz, I think Red Alert Locker, 
as well. Uh, there was some public reporting that highlighted them using quantum RAS. And they just did a school district a couple of weeks ago where they used RHYSIDA. R-H-Y-S-I-D-A. RHYSIDA. But to your point, these districts are getting hit. Sometimes lack of expertise and lack of monitoring or even proper programs in place to understand what things like lateral movement look like. It's very difficult for them to keep up with it. Traditionally, school districts have some underfunding when it comes to their IT investments, much less a cybersecurity program. Yeah. And we see this all the time, right? It's painful. And there are some resources that are out there to help them help these districts get through these, these issues. I think CISA has been publishing some really great intelligence also around adversaries that are targeting the, the academic industry and space. And then naturally, we have some really great blogs that focus on adversaries targeting K-12 and, and higher ed. With respect to higher education, I know that some of the motivators may be subtly different, right? And, and you mentioned something really important. I think we would probably see a lot more e-crime activity focused on K-12, but then probably a little more nation state activity as we get into larger universities and colleges that have these research programs. So you mentioned North Korea and you mentioned more nation state specific targeted attacks tied to these research divisions. Talk a little bit about you know what, what we're seeing and why that's so impactful, because I know that the funding that these universities receive for these big research arms includes access to data that could be almost, can we say it's national security-esque when it comes to that data leaving the country? Well, it can be. And I also consider that there's some sanctions in place against mm-hmm. places like Iran and North Korea. In fact, there's a whole campaign by Iranian threat actors of just getting access to universities so that they can get access to the material that they're otherwise excluded from having access to. Mm-hmm. There's a number of reasons for this. Let's go a little bit group by group here. China is very much looking to increase their ability to service their own you know, needs to take a look at the 14th five-year plan. You could take a look at the Belt and Road Initiative. There's lots of formalized structures inside of China that kind of sets where they need to make advancements in order to drive their economy. Artificial intelligence, healthcare, logistics, chip manufacturing, design, all of these things are critical for China to move itself out of being considered the workshop of the world. And in order to really do that, they, they're taking this leapfrog approach, which is you steal current state of the art and then innovate on top of it, or at least that's mm-hmm. the theory. Whether it be pharmaceutical research or technology or any number of the things that universities are studying, they want to get in and get access to it. I've talked to plenty of folks in academia and they say, well, we're going to publish it anyway, so who cares? It's mm. like, well, do you want to publish it or do you want the Chinese to publish it and to take your work from you? And so that's kind of, that. yeah, that's when they're like, huh. So China is doing it. Every single business vertical we track, every geolocation that we have visibility into and track, which is global, China is active. They're stealing intellectual property. They're using it for economic espionage. They're going to use it to track students as well. If there's dissidents or folks that are part of the pro-Tibet movement or trying to support the Uyghurs or anybody trying to bring democracy into China, there's these five poisons that that they have out there. But in, in terms of China, they want to, one, steal information that they can use for their own benefit. Two, they want to be able to track dissidents and people that are making problems for China. And three, they know that there are folks that kind of have a foot in the academia puddle and a foot in the think tank geopolit- uh, geopolitical puddle. 
and they want to get visibility into that. We've seen North Korea as well trying to get visibility into the academia sector. They also generate revenue for the regime. So anything that is tied to fintech, cryptocurrency, things of that nature, they, they may be interested in. And there may be some overlap with academia there. They also have a program called NEDS, the National Economic Development Strategy, which outlines six areas that they need to make advancements in. And a lot of people don't think about the impact of digital agriculture, right? Things like being able to identify crop failure or pests or disease in the crops early on or some of the animal husbandry issues. And North Korea has challenges with food supply and and things of that nature. So there's lots of things that they can learn. And I think North Korea is also starting to move into the China model of stealing intellectual property and then using it to develop their own capabilities domestically. I know Velvet Kalima has historically targeted not only like NGOs and think tanks, but they also have academics uh, on their list. It's an adversary that we've been tracking out of North Korea since I think 2010. Any other notable adversaries that our listeners should be aware of when it comes to specifically, again, academics, both K-12 and higher ed that, that are nation state? Yeah, I mean, we've um, definitely seen Russia as well. Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear have certainly been active in the academic targeting. I remember at one point Cozy Bear actually used medical devices that like was a medical related server for diagnostic equipment that they were using to store as like the secondary drop point for malware. So you would, you would basically pull the malware off of these servers. I mentioned Iran. Certainly Iran has been very active in that world as well. Scholar Kitten, which is also known as the MAPNA Institute in, in public reporting has been collecting journals and databases and credentials that they sell to those in Iran that would like access to that data that are prohibited from getting it because of sanctions or other issues. There's definitely many nation state threat actors that are interested in academia. They tend to focus on the higher level. So if you think about the breakdown of what does this sector even look like? You've got primary and secondary education, and that is what we started talking about, which is the school districts, and and they're very much targeted by ransomware and data extortion threat actors. And then you've got vocational higher education, which is more in between the two. Sometimes they're hit by, opportunistically, they'll be targeted by some of these criminal actors, but they could also be targeted by nation states that are looking to do intel collection. And then research entities, which tend to be more heavily targeted by those that are looking to steal state-of-the-art research or intellectual property. Certainly during the COVID pandemic, there was a lot of targeting of those that were involved in vaccine development and protocol development. A lot of university healthcare systems would have been of great interest there as well. So it is a whole mix of different things in that vertical, that sector, that are targeted by different threat actors. And this is an important reason why we do Intel. This is why organizations that prioritize intelligence when they're thinking about how to defend themselves understand that if you look at who's targeting my vertical, who's targeting my geographic region, 
then you can start to prioritize your defenses against the things that are most likely to impact you. No, it's, that's huge. I want to cover just one more adversary as it relates to academics, and that's Royal Spider. Tell me a little bit about them, right? Maybe a little bit of information that our listeners would find valuable when it comes to understanding their trade crafts, seeing that they've also been responsible for several academic campaigns. So Royal Spider is one that is tied back to the Russian Federation, like many other criminal groups. We first started seeing them last September, I think, was when we first started tracking them pretty closely. And it's a ransomware as a service. They kind of succeeded something known as Xeon Ransomware, which was pretty short-lived. And they are part of the group that has developed a lot of the ransomware for amongst various things, the SXI, which is a popular target for ransomware actors. There's really no software that gets deployed into ESXi, uh, which is a a hypervisor. And so because it's a hypervisor that doesn't have the ability to run its own security tools, they tend to go after that. And then ESXi obviously drives a lot of virtualized servers. So if you hit the ESXi system, then it's a great place to start from a ransomware perspective because it really makes it uh, pretty easy for you. Royal Spider kind of popped up, as I said, back in September of 2022, and and they kind of filled the gap when Conti, after Conti had gone away, Conti being the wizard spider ransomware as a service. So that was one that was very popular, but that was disrupted not too long after the Russian invasion of Ukraine when wizard spider came out and was pro-Russia, a researcher dropped internal chat logs from their chat server and that kind of put them out of the business for a while. So Royal popped up back in last September timeframe and has been pretty active in many different verticals. In fact, you know, you mentioned academia, but it's everything. They're pretty opportunistic, but it's a ransomware as a service, meaning they have affiliates that use it. So there could be one affiliate that particularly focuses on academia and that's where you see that popping up. Yeah. That makes sense. If you're listening to this episode and you're enlightened by some of these fantastic and in-depth insights into these adversaries, I think the one thing we'd like to leave you with, it is a back to school special. And while we're not going to give you backpacks, we're going to give you some advice on best practices. And so I'm I'm very familiar with the K-12 space, even higher ed, uh, running a program here for uh, several years um, as it relates to state, local and education. And I would always advise for having access to 24-7 monitoring services, right? Having a, a group or a program that allows for visibility and continuous monitoring into your systems after hours, because a lot of the school districts I work with, they are working with folks that are on a nine to five-esque type of schedule. And so when these attacks happen, a lot of times they're after hours and these adversaries realize that these respective targets don't necessarily have the resources to monitor these systems 24-7. And a lot of times admins walk into their respective environments first thing in the morning and they find their systems compromised, encrypted and or offline. And so very big fans of having a program that allows for extended monitoring after hours. Adam, what can you leave our listeners with also just to piggyback off of that for best practices around going back to school, schools getting ready for the influx of students and activity that can probably drive both parents and faculty alike nuts. Well, the thing that I I think is probably the best advice I would give to academia, school districts in in particular, 
is that given that there is a finite number of resources available from a a cybersecurity practitioner perspective and that they don't necessarily attract the the top talent for that. Another option is to make sure that you look into various managed services, things like Falcon Complete, where you have elite threat hunters that are able to monitor and, and manage everything that's happening inside the environment so that you can focus on the things that you need to focus on. Yeah. And yeah. I think that they've become very cost effective at this point to yeah. use those things rather than try to do it yourself. Right. I always equate this stuff to if you don't have the expertise, don't do it. Don't roll your own encryption. Don't build your own authentication. And if you can't staff your own cyber operations and there's threat actors out there, and even if it's just a school district being targeted by Royal Spider or Vice Spider or any number of these threat actors that they know how to operate. They do this all day. There's this old adage of defenders need to be right 100% of the time. Attackers only need to get lucky once. And so take that to heart and, and think about, should we be doing this ourselves? Or is there a service we can leverage that enables us to do what we do? And we have this thing where we say we stop breaches so that you can go. And I think that's important, right? If you're not able to do this internally, to do the threat hunting, to kind of have eyes on the systems 24 by 7, then find somebody that can because you can't stick your head in the sand and hope it's not going to happen to you anymore Mm -hmm. because it is. It's happening. Definitely. So everyone, on this very special back to school special or back to school episode, we wanted to actually bring in our inaugural guest for the Adversary Universe podcast. We thought it would be great to not only hear feedback from Adam and myself, but we thought it would be a great idea to actually bring in a guest that has experienced some of the challenges that we're seeing within K-12 specifically in this case, but can also give some perspective on what the experience is like on the other side of you know, seeing the threats that are attacking the education vertical and hopefully, you know, you know, for those who are listening, if you've been sick of Adam and myself for quite some time, you have another voice here that diversifies some of the dialogue that we're having here on the Adversary Universe podcast. But I'd like to introduce to our listeners, Mr. Jason Rooks. He's the CIO of Parkway School District in St. Louis. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you, Christian. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be the inaugural inaugural guest. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. You know, we're, we're pretty stoked. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. So if you don't mind, just give me a little overview of kind of your background and, and your career and specifically your role in the education sector. And, you know, we're going to walk through some questions and we really want your feedback on the things that you've experienced and observed as it relates to uh, adversaries that have been targeting education for, for some time. Yeah. So Christian, I'm, as, as you said, I'm the chief information officer for Parkway School District in St. Louis, Missouri. We're a suburban St. Louis school district for the state of Missouri. We're large. We have about 17,000 students, about 20,000 users that, that we support. We run an enterprise class shop. So we've got a, we've got a dedicated data center. We own, we own about 90 miles of our own fiber optic cable and maintain oh, wow. that network between our buildings. And so my background, I've been with Parkway 18 years, started out as a building level tech, working in the classroom with teachers and students, supporting those day-to-day needs and have moved up through the organization. And about mid-career, my my boss at that point came to me and said, hey, we really need to start taking a look at the cybersecurity thing. Can you start doing that? And literally with that much direction, I'm like, okay. Sure. So do that, I'm, right? Yeah. I'm going to do cybersecurity now, right? <laughs> That's great. 
So I, you know, I started doing my research, started looking at what industry was doing. I got my CISSP certification when it was still a, a six-hour written paper exam. And I maintain it just so that I never have to go through that again. Yeah, exactly. But then I've done my best to just kind of start creating that culture of security across in, in the K through 12 environment, both within our district and then sharing and collaborating with my counterparts across the state. I can imagine that that's a, a challenge too, because it sounds like, especially in education, what I've run across, and I love your feedback, is you're wearing a lot of different hats, right? And sometimes cybersecurity specifically doesn't get kind of its dedicated resource or you know, an allocation of resources. And so you have to be very much, you know, an expert of everything, right? Within, within yeah. education. Yeah. I mean, we're, I'm blessed to have the staff that I have, and we have one of the strongest teams we've ever had. But I also, once again, my counterparts have a lot smaller staffs. I mean, I have, I have friends who are a shop of two or three people, and that's your, your network administrator. That's your student information system manager. That's your, your server administrator. And even my organization, we don't necessarily have anyone who's tagged. You are the security person. You're the cybersecurity person. We've had to take that, the approach of, Everyone in a position of leadership or in a position of ownership within my team has to have that that security mindset, sure. has to understand that when we're designing new practices or new processes or implementing a new tool, we all have to be thinking about that security piece. And we and take that forward as we go about our day-to-day -day work. And it is something I've enjoyed. I enjoy the cybersecurity work. So I've done my best to hold on to it, even though a, a chief information officer, that's not necessarily something they should have their hands in day-to-day. Sure. You're touching a lot. But, but I think it's I think it's very valuable to have, you know, your different team members that are focusing on other areas of IT also embed security into their thought process, right? Because why not just do it right from the get-go? Try to build it out and then wrap security around it, right? Which could also be, you know, it could be easy esque, right? <laughs> right? Or there's a perception of it being easy. But I think if if everyone's on the same page with respect to, you know, our obje our objective is to ensure that whatever systems we build out are also secure, then I think that just provides longevity, right? In the grand scheme of things, you know, in terms of, of, of a solid security program. So yeah, yeah, I'll be very curious. So, so then tell me, right? So you, you're, you've been in this, in this school district for quite some time. You've seen this evolution of security. You were, you were tasked with building it out. Tell me about some of the threats that you're seeing, you know, facing, you know, schools specifically, because I'm, I'm sure that you're seeing it across a multitude of schools that are within your district, right? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's been interesting watching it evolve over the years. School districts house a large amount of data. And traditionally, we've housed that on-prem in a server environment. And we have very talented server people, but once again, they're not coming from that security background. And so, you know, we, early on in my career, we saw a lot of attacks on our data center, on trying to get to that treasure trove of student information that holds a lot of value financially for, for, the, for our attackers. And so we spent a lot of time kind of building that barrier, building the, building the wall and putting up the moat to try to keep the bad actors out of our data center. And that evolved in, into, you know, all of a sudden phishing became the big thing. And that's been interesting watching phishing attacks evolve. We used to get the, the really poorly written, horrible phishing, you know, sure. that was obviously yeah, not, easy, not easy, easy to identify, right? Easy to identify. Yeah, easy to identify. Yeah. And now it's gotten so much more sophisticated and so more advanced that they're mirroring, you know, the phishing emails are mirroring our staff hierarchy structure, pretending to be principals, emailing teachers. They're attacking us in both 
the, our, our email inbox, as well as on mobile devices and leveraging kind of the social engineering aspects of all of that. It's got to be urgent and it's got to be quick and we need to respond now to this. And shifting our staff to understand that how to respond to those has been a challenge, but it's definitely been that shift of building the moat around our, our data center to now we're trying to build that understanding with our end users. Because as we all know, that's that's going to be our hugest, our biggest vulnerability. Yeah, no, absolutely. We have some really great content that we are publishing in the form of reports. So for example, not long ago, we released our threat hunting report that actually focused on the fact that the majority of attacks that were that were we've been monitoring have been in terms of their their success have been tied to identities being compromised, right? And the user always seems to be kind of caught in the middle of this, you know, the results of of a phishing attack or, you know, in some previously successful or prior successful campaign, we've seen credentials harvested and now being sold in these access broker forums. And so the adversaries are kind of walking in through the front door. But in order to even get to those points, I'm sure that, you know, like you mentioned, those SMS attacks or those phishing attacks that you're seeing in abundance are kind of driving the value of those credentials being sold in these access broker forums, right? So so that's very interesting. You know, it's interesting, you know, I also think it's interesting because if you were to talk about cybersecurity, maybe even 10 years ago, maybe even farther than that, because, you know, I've been in, in the industry for a bit too, but some of the concerns were tied to like students like logging onto servers or get hack, hacking, I'm using air quotes, onto a server to change their grades. And now we're talking about the value of the data of student information, right? And so, yeah. you know, what... What does that look for you? Look like for you in terms of challenges of securing that, right? Because obviously the users themselves and there's the phishing attacks are one thing, but what type of, of challenges do you see overall on, you know, whether it's resourcing or whether it's in the evolution of technology and, you know, AI even, right? We'd love your feedback on, on that. Yeah. And you, you hit on some of those there. School districts, you know, we feel obligated to put our resources where our students are. That's in the classroom, Right. And you, you mentioned over the past 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, it was really tough to make the proposition, the business proposition of we need the best firewall, we need the best EDR, we need this, because it doesn't really touch that student in the classroom. Then you saw this explosion of ransomware within the K through 12 environment. And as a, as a IT leader in a school district, it was sitting here like watching houses in your neighborhood explode and you're oh, wow. just waiting for it to happen to you. But it, that also caught the attention of district leadership because now the ransomware was shutting down schools. Now we're hitting you're hitting the school districts in the pocketbook, so to speak, with regards to it's impacting student attendance because you can't hold school if you don't have phones, if you don't have access to the health records, if you don't have access to your information system for emergency contacts. Now we had leadership's ear to say they're, they're looking at other at our neighboring districts going, OK, Jason, how do we stop this from happening here? And now I've got that value proposition to say, here's what we need to make sure we're not the next one in the neighborhood whose house explodes. And so that's it's been an interesting evolution and, and it's picked up momentum. But that's been a challenge. Like it took us years to get there. It took a number of bad incidents for us to get there. The adoption of technology is picking up pace, for, especially for school districts when COVID hit. There was a quick reaction to, we need to adopt all of these online applications. We don't care what it is, but we need to be able to continue learning remotely. And so we onboarded a lot of applications where we're sending student information to. And now we're back in person and we're having to try to reel that in, but mm. there's still this rolling momentum of our teachers have done virtual and now they wanna do more and more and more, which is great. We have been trying to do that for years, but now we're also trying to kind of wrangle it in to say, we need to be really 
careful about where we're sending our student information, how we're sending it, who has access, because the next worst thing than a district actually getting breached or a ransomware attack is one of our providers getting breached or having a ransomware attack. Yeah. And we're worried about getting that notification. Yeah. That's a tough one. I mean, we just saw this with uh, Microsoft, right, in the most recent breach that they experienced, which was very unfortunate. I think they disclosed maybe a dozen or less than that of, of, of companies that were impacted by that mail compromise. But that's still very significant in the grand scheme of things, right? I mean, and we were we were really we we were paying we were paying very close attention to Log4j. Yeah. Most recently, Move It. Oh, not yeah. that we're mm-hmm. using those, but we were keeping an eye on our partners that may or may not be using those and holding them accountable. Have you upgraded? Have you patched this? Because you're handling our data and we need we have a responsibility to do that. Absolutely. So it sounds then like, you know, I remember this, my kids during COVID sitting home, you know, getting access to Zooms and all of these new applications that were being introduced to, you're trying to kind of reel that back in an effort to, you know, understand where your data is, how it's being managed, who's managing it, and so forth. I'm sure that requires a very large investment in additional security tools to to kind of aggregate that information back into a central location, or maybe even to, to reduce it by a certain value so that you have a little more control. What does that look yeah. like for a school district, right, where you're now having to reassess the tools that you're ma- you're using to secure this data? Well, it's it, we're the approach we're taking is we are trying to consolidate. Any application that's going to access our student information, we're trying to route it through a data broker. So there are a couple of K through 12 applications that do specifically that. They'll integrate with your student information system, and then they act as a broker to share that data out with all these third-party apps. And that way, we have an idea of we're only sending them absolutely what they need, and then we can cut off that access whenever we see fit. And so we've got greater control over that. So looking at that, going back to managing identity and having some sort of data broker in between our data and the end and that end application has become the focus of our work. So identity, you know, you mentioned a keyword there. Identity again being a very hot topic. Everyone's trying to get yeah. their arms around it. I'm sure again in in K twelve. A bit of a challenge, I'm assuming, or, you know, we see it as a challenge, especially in the university side. We see it with large enterprise. You know, what does that look like for for K-12? Well, that's what I've always said. K through 12 usually lags two to three years behind industry. And so I think, you know, as we talk, look at identity, zero trust, those types of those types of structures. We're we're kind of monitoring like we're monitoring what those entities that you just described, how are they digesting this? How are they managing it? And then I would say in another year or two, we'll probably pulling start pulling from them, especially higher ed, because we look to higher ed as a very similar environment. Say, how how are our local universities managing this and how can we take that and implement it in our environment? Because once again, we then we because then we fall back onto the lack of personnel. And if I implement zero trust or if I implement some new security tool, I have to make sure I have the staff that can manage it day to day and that we're not just sitting there watching an, uh, alerts come in yeah. and not be able to to respond to those or just take action. And it's like, great, now I know, but I don't have the personnel to actually do anything about to, it. Yeah, to do something about it. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very that's an interesting challenge across a multitude of verticals where it's so easy to get lost in, in investing in tools. But then, you know, more data doesn't mean easy, right? More data means more data. And so you do need someone to to look through that and make sense of it. And I know that it's still a very big challenge. And, you know, there's some ways that we'd love to to even revisit a conversation with you on how you think that could, in a multitude of of ML resources, can kind of help you get through that data. So you mentioned earlier the concept of like incidents kind of driving your decision-making process. And so I'd love to, if, if okay, to maybe touch on 
you know, what an incident looks like within K-12 and what does a response look like? Because again, being short-staffed or not necessarily short-staffed, but having limited resources, I'm sure could, could, could be a big challenge when, you know, the house is on fire, right? And you're trying to, to kind of put that out. So walk me through what that looks like for, you know, in your environment, you can disclose as much or as little as you want, but you know, what, what is that, what would that look like for you? Well, and I'll try to keep this short, but I would like to just kind of hit on this, you know, how we kind of got started with CrowdStrike to begin with. In November of 2017, we got hit with a malware attack. It was a variation of QuackBot, Emotet, trying to harvest credentials. And of course, this happened the week before Thanksgiving holiday. And so that was our first major, I would say, incident response that we had. The benefit of what came out of that was it did disrupt our operations. Fortunately, we were we were students out of the door to go home for Thanksgiving, oh, wow. which gave my time my team some time to work, but they were also sacrificing their Thanksgiving time as well. But the good thing to come out of that is we were able to adopt CrowdStrike as a solution, which was great. We were all sleeping better at night. CrowdStrike was alerting us to incidents and we were doing our best to respond. And so, as you said, an incident comes up at one o'clock in the morning, we get it when we come in at five or six o'clock and hope that it hasn't progressed very far. And we do our best with the resources that we have available to respond it. And in most K through 12 environments, if it's an endpoint issue, it's called, we reimage it. Like we got an alert, wipe it, start from scratch, right? But we did have another incident that came about where one of our technicians that was monitoring our CrowdStrike alerts marked a true positive as a false positive. It was it was a scripting attack. He he didn't recognize, he didn't know the scripting language, it was PowerShell, and he didn't understand what, what was nefarious about it. Okay. Um, and that is when we kind of shifted again and took the approach of really, if we're going to protect our district, we need to look at a managed endpoint solution. Because A, we're not 24-7. Yeah. Um, I don't know a school, very few school districts are, other sure. than the big ones, the LA Unified, the Houston ISDs, yeah. those probably have 24-7 support, but your average school district doesn't. And we really don't have the expertise to respond. Like, to be real, to be realistic about it, yeah. I don't have someone who is a threat hunter or able to respond to a scripting attack or something like that. So that shifted us to look at that managed, or in this case, CrowdStrike Complete, to provide that, that kind of around the clock expertise and support that we needed to respond because we are constantly under attack. We have 3000 Windows workstations out in the wild that we're just trying, we're trying to keep track of them physically, much less every, all the, all the nefarious things going on behind the curtain. Sure. Analyzing every single PowerShell script that, that runs on them. Yeah. Right? So yeah. that's not sustainable for a K through 12 environment. Yeah. And I think even it, it echoes into other verticals as well, right? Where you even, you know, I just met with a very large financial institution that has a 24-7 SOC service and hundreds of thousands of endpoints. And it's interesting to hear very similar sentiment even, right, where they they said, listen, we we have a team that they're experts in this, but we also want an additional layer of expertise because you guys hunt on this data all the time and we just want to have additional eyes on glass on attacks yeah. that can be very sophisticated. So it's a very interesting theme that I think everyone is experiencing where they, they want just additional resources to ensure that, you know, their systems are protected and that are, you know, they're getting the attention that the systems deserve, right? So, you know, I think, you know, if we talk about how security then has, you, know, you mentioned it helps you sleep better at night, right? I, I want to dig into that, into that, right? So, you know, obviously this is not, you know, the purpose of the podcast isn't to be a CrowdStrike uh, commercial yeah. by any means, but I think, you know, for someone like yourself that has been tasked with, you know, from the get-go building out the security program, you know, for, for the school district, what, you know, how do you think security 
has enabled the business, right? Or has, has enabled your organization because a lot of times security is frowned upon. They think it's an inhibitor uh, or we've heard challenges around security lacking, you know, especially when you start investing in tools, not many conversations seem to focus on like risk reduction, right? Or the enablement of a business. And so very curious, like what, what how do you see security enabling your mission as a school district? Yeah, at the end of the day, you know, our core competency or our focus or our mission is to support teachers and students in the classroom and support student success when we really get down to it. And and so, you know, as you look at going back to, you know, your CIA, security, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, that has become, that's been one of those evolutions. The, the availability of our network or our online resources or our data is no longer optional in a school district, right? They, our teachers and students need 24 by 7 access. Our our district leaders need to make need their data to be available to them. It needs to have you know have the integrity and as well as confidentiality. Our parents are expecting us to protect that student data. So all those expectations have risen over the past few years, and that's been the value proposition that we propose to the district. Is like we are adopting these tools or these practices, and usually adopting the practices is more more painful for the end user than the tools are. But that's the why that we have to explain. If you want that that reliable, dependable access, if you want us to make sure the data is correct and you want us to make sure that it's held, being held confidential, here are the steps we need to take. And that's that's it's hard to say no when you proposition it like that. No, that's very, 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 very valuable. And I hope that uh, our listeners that are also within K-12 and, and working within school districts kind of hear this and, and share the same sentiment. And if not, they can leverage some of this feedback as as, as a mechanism to to, to drive their mission into an area of success. So Jason, I want to thank you so much for jumping on our podcast and being our first non-CrowdStrike guest to cover some of the some of the, the benefits naturally of what we've done as a, as a partner with you, but more importantly, some of the challenges and, and some of the things that have, have faced the education sector, because I think it's something very important, especially with all of our kids going back to school. I think the awareness of how schools being impacted by these cyber, cyber threats and attacks are real. Here on the Adversary Universe podcast, we traditionally focus on, on a variety of different groups that are targeting, you know, very specific verticals. We've covered this in an earlier discussion with Adam. But yeah, just really want to thank you again for coming out and, and sharing some of your feedback. Do you have any parting words for our listeners on, you know, you know, keeping and staying, staying course and, and keeping on the mission? Yeah, I guess I would say to to all the K through 12 leaders out there, K through 12 IT leaders out there, stick with it. You're doing you're doing good work. It, I know it's frustrating. And usually the only time people call you is when they're they're upset about something. <laughs> but hang in there and remember all this work that we are doing. It's about the students. When you boil it down, it's about protecting them both physically and digitally and, and their information so that then when they leave our doors, they're in a good position to to have a successful future. Awesome. So, Jason, tell me a little bit about how cyber insurance is impacting your security program at uh, Parkway. Yeah, the the cybersecurity insurance companies have kind of become aware that school districts are a huge target um, and that there's a lot of ransom to be taken from a ransomware school district. And so they've put down in the last year new requirements for us. And if we don't meet those requirements, they'll they'll either double our deductible or not insure us as a school district as a whole. And so they're they're helping kind of direct um how a school district or way, the way the school district implements a cybersecurity program and really just requiring a lot of the basics that um, we've started 
uh, significantly earlier um, due to the incidents that we've already we've already had happen to us. But things like multi-factor authentication um, is a requirement. Having an actual EDR and not just traditional antivirus is is one of the requirements. And then looking at privilege access. You know, do your users need to have admin rights on the workstation? Um, you know, we're we've been fortunate to be able to check all of those three boxes out of the many boxes that they're asking us to to verify and. So it's, once again, it's broad. This conversation has put some financial impact behind a cybersecurity program that impacts not just the IT department, but district leadership. And it's helping bring those two groups together to say, we are doing this. This isn't just IT forcing it forward. We as a district need to take uh, cybersecurity seriously and implement uh, a robust and mature program. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Thank you so much for listening to Mr. Jason Rooks of the Parkway School District. He's a CIO joining us here as our first non-CrowdStrike guest. I want to thank him again for providing some very, very valuable insight into what the education sector is experiencing. We are going to have a plethora of guests throughout the rest of our episodes over the next you know, several uh, weeks. And so we do thank you again for listening to this uh, episode of the Adversary Universe podcast. I'm Christian Rodriguez, field CTO of the Americas. Catch you in the next slide. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to CrowdStrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe podcast. This is the Adversary Universe podcast.